If you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, you can turn to the book of Genesis. Our Old Testament reading is from the book of Genesis. We'll read chapter 24, verses 29 through 51. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and the place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abram, Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your cam camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had spent, finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel. Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. 
Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You can turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew. As we continue our time in Matthew's Gospel, having spent a few weeks in uh, different texts because of visitors and the holiday, uh, chapter 4, you can remember, opened with Christ's temptation in the wilderness. And then John's arrest was the occasion for Christ to withdraw from the southern region into the northern region of Galilee, where he commenced his public ministry, which opened with the same message that John the Baptist was preaching, namely repentance and the nearness of the kingdom. And here we see in the wake of that declaration of the kingdom, something of the nature of both that king and that kingdom. An unusual king who gathers to himself unusual subjects and an unusual reign, which manifests itself in a life of following one who does not seem to be at home in this world. And so with that, lend your attention to the reading of God's word. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and followed him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing. Uh, Almighty God, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will be fulfilled. Your word is truth, and your truth abideth. And so we pray that you would bless this reading of your word, Lord, as we consider even your faithfulness on display long ago, extended unto Abraham, to Isaac, even in such lovely ways as providing a good wife, the wife that you had intended. We pray, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word, even now that it would permeate, Lord, our stubbornness and our foolishness, that it would disarm us, and that it would have its intended effect upon our hearts, that we might see Christ more clearly, that our faith in him would swell. Or not knowing him, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see the excellencies of your king and his reign of grace. You alone can do these things. We ask that you would do them, Father. For we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. If you ask my brothers, my father, what my least favorite thing in the world is, there's a good chance they say fishing. <laughs> I recently read uh, A River Runs Through It, which almost got me there. <laughs> the idyllic waters of the Blackfoot River, uh, the loveliness of a pair of boys, offspring of a Presbyterian minister, 
Norman McLean even cites the Westminster Shorter Catechism in his short story. It's about as close to a love of fishing that I think I'm going to get. <laughs> uh, but still, I find that I do not want to touch fish. <laughs> I think the ancient Mesopotamians had it right. For them, fish were the near relative of snakes. <laughs> I don't think the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is too far from that, as fish come from the sea. And who rules over the sea? Leviathan. <laughs> Leviathan rules over the sea. It's plain that the idyllic life of fishing that a river runs through it presents is not exactly what these men were engaged in. <laughs> Nor is it the background that the Lord seizes upon when he wants them to consider their life as fishermen and their future life as apostles. He does not say it will be like a pleasant afternoon with brothers on a quiet river fly fishing. <laughs> he says it will be like being on a tiny boat. On the Sea of Galilee, which is prone to tempestuous storms at a notice that will threaten your very life. It will be like casting your nets out and not catching anything. Seemingly futile. It will be like hazarding life and limb for you're not exactly sure what. <laughs> Come, follow me. <laughs> and they go. Luke actually couples this episode with a remarkable miracle. I don't know if you can recall Luke's episode uh, recording this. Uh, they had been out fishing for quite some time and they had caught nothing. And then the Lord says, cast your nets out again. And Peter, being a seasoned fisherman, shows a remarkable uh, degree of humility. I don't know if you've ever encountered someone who's not in your trade telling you how to do your job after you had just failed to do your job. It's a very humbling moment. So the fact that he says, okay, Lord, I'll do it, I think is testimony to the Lord's work of grace already in the man's heart. And he does, and they haul in a remarkable catch because the Lord's power in a miracle had been displayed. Mm. These are the sorts of images for fishing that the Lord seizes upon to structure our understanding of the kingdom of God in this world. A life in the church, life following after the Lord Jesus Christ. But all of it is bathed in great encouragement because at the end of the day, what is perhaps most remarkable is just this very simple call. Come with me. Be with me. With me we conquer. That's the call of the gospel, isn't it? It's the Lord Jesus Christ saying, here I am. Come, be with me, and all will be well. So we consider this lovely little exchange here between a pair of brothers and the great king. So let's first consider the king who seeks Second, we'll consider the servants who fish. And third, we'll consider the fish who follow. The king who seeks, the servant who fishes, 
and the fish who follow. Mm. The king who seeks. The section opens, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. When Lancelot comes across a strange figure on a horse, he engages him in combat. Lancelot was the most famous of Arthur's knights. Apparently, to engage a stranger in combat was common practice back then. I wouldn't recommend trying it. Finding a stranger on the street, challenge him to a boxing match. <laughs> but that was the practice then. This figure was a striking figure on the horse, but Lancelot was brave. He knew he was not to be matched. They engage, and Lancelot knocks him down. And then he goes, and he helps the fallen knight back up, as also was practiced back then. And he was very surprised to find that the one whom he had knocked down was none other than King Arthur himself. Mm. Lancelot had already sworn his love to King Arthur. In fact, he was going to see him. And somehow the fact that he had met Arthur alone, riding in the midst of his kingdom, without entourage, without banner, without anything, only made Lancelot love him more. Verse 17, Jesus has just announced that the kingdom is at hand. Matthew has been preparing us from the very beginning to see that Jesus Christ is the king, the son of David, the son of God, the one to whom the nations bow down. And here we see the proclamation of this kingdom and then the presentation of this king doing that which kings don't really do. <laughs> we meet him walking along the sea, just strolling along the shore. Kings do go for walks, but they go through walks through their gardens. <laughs> they go for walks like Nebuchadnezzar went on a walk atop his wall to survey that order that he had introduced to the world and to delight in the excellencies of his power. They walk in gardens. They walk on palace promenades where order reigns. How wonderful this king is. He does not sit idly by or content himself to only be where all is neat and tidy. For what is the sea? The sea is that which is unruly. The sea is that which is dangerous. Matthew's going to pick up on that throughout his gospel. What is Jesus going to do? He's going to walk on the waves. What's Jesus going to do? He's going to quiet the storm. And not only that, the sea is going to be the passage into which, through which he travels to enter into those most gentilic and demon-possessed regions of the world beyond Israel. That's where he meets the demoniac and that unfortunate herd of pigs. We find here a king who does not shy away from the heart of darkness. We find a king here who is not embarrassed by mess, but a chaotic and tumultuous condition of the human plight. And that's what we've heard Matthew say from the beginning. Jesus, who went to Egypt. Jesus, who was found as offspring of Mary. <laughs> 
Jesus, who was ensconced in this swell of weeping and death as Herod sought to slaughter the innocents. Jesus, who was content to dwell in Nazareth, this backwater and despisable place. Jesus, who went into the waters, filthy, full of the people's sin, with whom he is not ashamed to identify. Jesus, who allowed Satan, that foul dragon, to accost him in temptation. Jesus, who went to the wilderness here. Jesus, who stands face to face with the sea. Do you get the point? The mess of your heart, the mess of this thing of the church, it's not going anywhere in this life. But he doesn't blush at it. He stands on the shore of it as the Lord of heaven and earth. As the Lord who stills the waters. As the Lord who gives a word. And fish jump into a net. <laughs> the chaos of the human plight is more clearly known by him than it is known by you. That's the type of king he is. Isn't that what he says? The son of man, that high royal title given to him by the book of Daniel. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. There's great encouragement in that, isn't there? <laughs> That this king does not sit in a neat palace, but goes and rescues. But goes and demonstrates his power in the midst of mess. Isn't that exactly what Isaiah says? Isaiah 42. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Fear not, I am with you. Don't we often entertain the lie that if he knew how messy this was, he would want nothing to do with me? He's the only one who knows how messy that is. And he says... I've come for it. That's why I've come. If you could do this on your own, I would have had to come. <laughs> if it was a mild mess from which you could extricate yourself, I wouldn't have had to die. Don't despise the gospel. Don't magnify the mess of your sin and misery to such a degree that it eclipses the power of this king. No, his power eclipses our sin and misery. His power on display in his presence confirmed to us even in the valley of the shadow of death where he says, I'm with you. You need not fear evil because I'm with you. <laughs> There's comfort knowing that he doesn't shy from our mess, that he knows it fully. And there's comfort in knowing that he seeks us out intentionally. 
and he comes to seek and to save the lost. Are you following the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you see him? Have you confessed? Jesus Christ is, who are you? Well, you're the Christ. You're the Son of God. Have you said that? Do you know that? If so, rejoice, because it means he sought you out particularly. <laughs> he didn't just happen upon you and content himself saying, well, I guess you'll do. He pursued you with more intentionality and persistence than Andrew pursued Hannah. For reasons mysterious and wonderful, God the Father set his love upon you before the worlds began. <coughs> Jesus Christ came and he died for you in the fullness of time. And when the moment was right in the infinite wisdom of God, he summoned you and said, follow me because I bought you. You're mine. Come and be with me and all will be well. Will such a love cast aside? How could it? <laughs> when it's his purpose and good pleasure which initiated it all. We are the sea. <laughs> Our hearts have nothing to commend themselves natively to this God, but rather his power and his grace is magnified as he sets his love upon the ill-deserving. We see that next in those whom he calls, the servants who fish. He doesn't gather nobles. He doesn't gather religious leaders or princes or those who obviously have something to commend themselves. He gathers lowly and unlearned fishermen. I suspect that these men were less like good and gentle Mr. Peggotty and Ham from David Copperfield and more like the rough and ready crew of the Pequod from Moby Dick. <laughs> Or perhaps there's a mixture of both, I'm not sure. But in either case, as this king gathers the core of his kingdom, we're struck that in one sense, these are very unlikely men. This is not Lancelot. <laughs> these are fishermen. That's how the passage goes on. Saw, Andrew, saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Perhaps the most striking feature of fishermen that would have leapt to the ancient mind would have been their lowly status. As the apostles will uh, come to find out in time, most people knew them as unlearned men, <laughs> as unimpressive men, as men who had not been equipped by nature with some staggering height of educational achievement. And we ought not to overblow this because God also called Paul <laughs> and Paul was a titan in learning. <laughs> But there is something remarkably fitting about him taking these unlearned men, those who had nothing to commend themselves to the eyes of the world and say, you will be princes in this kingdom that I am building. 
You will be my hands and my feet as I send you out to gather, to continue my mission of seeking and saving the lost. Once a minute, again, we're impressed by the things which impress us. Title, status, wealth, educational achievement. They do not establish position in the eyes of the Lord. They do not establish favor in the eyes of the Lord, for he shows no partiality. The Lord was pleased to gather unto himself the lowly here, but let's not also make the mistake of reveling in ignorance. I had heard this. I remember I was thinking about going to seminary at the time, and I had a number of well-meaning Christians saying, well, what do you need to go to seminary for? Uh, The Lord called the apostles, and they didn't know anything. It's like, well, yeah, but they spent three years with Jesus, <laughs> like, like face to face with it. It was like the best seminary you could imagine. <laughs> he doesn't leave them in this state. He's going to teach them. He's not just going to unfold the riches of doctrine to them. He's going to teach them how to walk in the light of that doctrine. Peter's going to undergo a remarkable transformation. <laughs> His cowardice is going to be transformed into a certain courage by God's grace. His brusqueness, his his roughness is going to be softened. As you read the epistles, you find him to be very tender hearted. How can that be? How can the rough and ready crew of the Pequod, the ignorant and the unlearned, Reach not just knowledge, but true knowledge, meaning doctrine adorned with godliness. Well, there's only one way. They walked with Jesus. It's the only way anyone learns anything. is to be with, to draw near the one in whom is all knowledge, all wisdom, all understanding. And to be taught of him. To be led by him. To receive from him. But it's interesting to me also that he doesn't call shepherds. He calls fishermen. That's striking, isn't it? We had an occasion a couple weeks ago to mark that the Lord loves shepherds. Or at least there's something about shepherds which suits his purposes. As Jacob was a shepherd, Moses was a shepherd, David was a shepherd. Jesus Christ sets himself forth as the good shepherd. But here he says fishermen. Now, partly I think this has to do with Matthew's emphasis on the gospel going to the nations. The unruliness of the nations and the suitability of this world configured as a sea sets up this call of fishermen as that which is particularly fitting. He wants us to see that, in a sense, they're going to continue to fish but in a different way. That's what he says. I'll make you fishers of men. I really like the 5th century church father Chromatius on here. He was an anti-Arian supporter of John Chrysostom. Early 5th century. He says the apostles are called not only fishermen, but also hunters. It's a little fanciful, but the point here is good. And plus, I was ragging on hunting a little while ago, so it kind of redeems hunting. The apostles are called not only fishermen, but also hunters. Fishermen for the nets of gospel preaching catch all believers like fish in the world. 
hunters, for they catch for salvation by heavenly hunting those people who are roving in this world as though in the woods of error and who are living like wild animals. And that's true. The darkness of ignorance and the brutishness that it introduces. Calvin echoes nearly the same sentiment. Men stray and wander in the world as in a great and troubled sea until they are gathered by the gospel. Well, if the apostles are fishermen, then men are fish. And the world is a sea. Doesn't that follow? That's the picture he presents here. And it's a fitting image for the world and its God. The dragon. The God of this world. It's an unruly sea in which all are drowning, though they think they live. And it's also a fitting image for Christ's salvation. As the gospel net is cast into the sea and brings in a host of men onto the boat of the church. Strangely safe atop the often stormy waters because Christ is in the boat. He wants them to use their past experience as fishermen to peer into their future lives as churchmen. And that's instructive for us. Not only because it continues to encourage us to cast our nets, cast the net of the gospel out, but also because it reminds us that life in this world as a church is life on a boat in the midst of a sea. Can get uncomfortable on a boat, can it? Did you ever feel that way? Our shipmates are a bit unruly. <laughs> but if the only alternative is the ocean, <laughs> where are you going to go? <laughs> The boat is not ideal, but I assure you it is more ideally suited for human life than the sea. Hang in there. The image seems to prepare us for some difficulty together, and he's going to develop this image throughout the gospel. It would be kind of a discouraging image if he left it at that, but he doesn't. Because he doesn't just call fishermen, he also calls brothers. That's the other part he wants us to see. Not only are they fishermen, but they're brothers. Four times in this little passage. Four times he says they're brothers. A pair of brothers, brother, brother, brother. <laughs> okay, you're summoning brothers. Why? Well, a couple different reasons, but the first I think is lovely. He's pleased to honor his good gift of family. The family is God's design. God designed families. He's designed those bonds of nature which knit hearts together. And he calls these men who have that knitting of hearts together by the bond of nature, and he's going to make it all the sweeter as he knits them in the bond of grace. We had the occasion yesterday to delight in the good gift of family. As our very own we're surrounded by their families as they start their new family. And we got to see fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and cousins all rejoicing in Christ together. 
at the good gift that the two had received. How lovely. How fitting. God does not dispense with the good gift of family in his administration of grace. That's part of the reason we baptize our children. Sin has complicated the good gift of family, but it has not eradicated it. Sin has made it such that oftentimes the gospel call divides families. That's true. But that's not the whole picture. That's not the only angle. Because just as often by his grace, it unites families more sweetly still. Do you have natural family who follow the king? Who follow after Christ? Rejoice at God's goodness in that. Rejoice at the layer of loveliness that adorns your natural affection. Rejoice that the bond of natural blood which knits your heart to a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, a daughter, a son is now infused with that sweeter and everlasting bond of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's lovely, isn't it? Do you have natural family who reject the gospel in Christ? Devote yourself anew in prayer for them. Let the natural bonds which knit your heart to theirs fuel your perseverance in prayer for them. <laughs> because I'll let you in on a secret. You were just as lost as they were before the Lord Jesus Christ summoned you. The same word of power which introduced light and life into your heart when there was nothing but death and darkness delights to introduce light and life unto dead and dark hearts. So pray for the lost and let that affinity you have for your family only fuel those prayers all the more. Because remarkably, this king gets fish to follow him. <laughs> so we can consider last the fish who follow. Mm. I'm struck by the response of these brothers. How quickly they respond. At how little. Follow me. And they do. Twice, he says immediately. Immediately, they went. Immediately, they went. And not only is the promptness profiled, but the costliness as well is profiled. Did you hear that? Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them immediately. They left the boat and their father and followed him. If the Lord of heaven and earth summons you, just go with him. Just, just go with him. There's nothing more important. There's nobody more important. There's nothing more pressing. Again and again, this call to follow him is going to go forth, and people are going to come up with all sorts of reasons why they can't respond right now. 
I got to do this. I got to do that. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm of the mind that most things can be neglected. I think every text and email that I receive can be neglected indefinitely. Mm -hmm. The only moral obligation I have to respond to you is if you're standing in front of me. <laughs> Christ is standing in front of you right now and saying, come with me. I alone have life. Come with me. You weren't made to live in a sea. You weren't made to live in the heart of chaos. Come with me. Come with me. And make no mistake, and I consistently express my remorse over this, I wish it were him standing before you, summoning you. But in his wisdom, he has decided to send men to summon you. But make no mistake, it's his voice that summons He's preparing these men right now to continue his summons, but he's the one who summons. An ambassador does not stand in his own authority. An ambassador stands in the authority of the one whom he represents. I am here on his behalf to say, come to Christ. Follow this king. Whether it's the first time or the thousandth time. Because perhaps you, Christian, need to hear that that call to take up your cross and follow me continues day by day in the Christian life, does it not? Nobody believes once and then checks that off and then moves on to other things. It is a daily call to look unto Christ in faith, to walk with him in faith, to follow after him in faith. This is a remarkable call from one respect. I'm struck by this because in the Old Testament, what was Israel's consistent sin? That they followed after other gods. So for Jesus Christ to show up and say, follow me, is no slight commentary concerning the person who is summoning. As a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, I said, come to this king. He's a king like no other. His kingdom is like no other. His gifts are like no other. Come to him in faith. It is a costly call in some respects. These men leave behind the things of this world. Now make no mistake, there is a sense in which this passage is a unique call to these men. Not everybody is called in the strictest sense to leave behind an earthly profession an earthly family as these men were called to do. Perhaps you're considering gospel ministry. The unique call is perhaps more fitting to consider as a gospel minister because you will leave behind a conventional profession. <laughs> You'll serve utterly at the disposal of a king who tells you to go one place and then another and then another still, perhaps. 
Now, in a sense, it's true of all of his servants, but these men were set apart and were devoted unto a comprehensive call where they ate and drank and slept gospel ministry. You can pray for me in that regard because I inhabit the same world you inhabit. Wrestle with the same flesh that you wrestle with. Selfishness, laziness, our moments insatiable appetite for that which is easy, that which is fun, a distaste for difficult things, all of it I wrestle with. But he set me apart to do something different. Pray for me, please. It's in all of our best interests, I assure you. (laughs) But there is a sense in which this call isn't just for gospel ministers, it's for every Christian. There is a cost. But there's also a gain, is there not? These men leave nets and boat and father And Jesus invites them to consider their experience with those things and how that's meaningfully going to give them insight into what awaits them. Nets, provision. A boat, protection. A father, the comfort of family. Christ calls and they turn their back on all of it. Mark, if it's not uncomfortable to follow Christ. Have you felt this? There is an uncertainty because you know that you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. At the end of the day, you go through, you go where, you experience whatever it is the king determines. And you say, I serve at your disposal. I belong to you. But later on, Peter's going to bring up this exact issue of what was left behind and what there was to gain. What does he say? He says, we've left all of this behind. And what does Jesus say? Everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. He says, in one sense, yeah, you've lost. You've forfeited these things. Family, jobs, profit, possessions. The call is always going to cost you something. But what you lose is not worthy to be compared with what you gain. Because you gain Jesus Christ. You gain our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You gain eternal life, comfort in this world, a family in this world, and blessings in the world to come. I think it's striking that the Father here is profiled. It says they left their Father. And as one early church father put it, says they left an earthly father, but they gained a heavenly father as they came to know the beloved son. That's the other layer to the significance of calling brothers. He's not calling Andrew, brother of Peter, John, 
brother of James. He's calling them to become his brothers. That's how the gospel ends. When the women see Christ on that resurrection morning, what does he tell them? He says, go, tell my brothers that I'll meet them in Galilee. He's not ashamed to call you brothers. He's not ashamed to call you family. And if you stand in that relation to the son, you stand in the most blessed relation conceivable to the father. There is no loss that can compare to such a gain. So once more, I implore you as a servant of this king, follow him. I assure you, it is worth it. Join me in prayer. Sanctify us by your word, O oh Lord. Astonish us at your goodness, your mercy, your grace. Summons us and enable us to do your will. Position us, Lord, to offer our hearts to you promptly and willingly. For we ask in Christ's name, amen.